next lesson on, let's move into our next lesson on winning the war in your mind. This morning, we're talking about restoring godly perspective. I want to do a little bit of review because I know we've missed a week, and I appreciate um, Robert filling in last week. Huge blessing. But I want us to kind of dial in on this and make sure we get our bearings back in this series because there's kind of a flow that's here, and we don't want to interrupt that, okay? So a couple fill-in-the-blank questions. They're not on your handout. I want you to answer them out loud. Raise your hand, and I'll call on you. The, the basis of this series is this principle, that your life is moving in the direction of your strongest what? Your life is moving in the direction of your strongest what? Thoughts, right? Is that what you said? Okay, cool. I just want to make sure I heard you right. I got some, some sinus congestion, Michael, so just understand. All right, uh, good, good. Thoughts, right? Satan's primary weapon of choice is what? Don't answer Michael. If you've answered, you don't get to answer again. Satan's primary weapon of choice is what? This is too easy. Come on, y'all. Lies, Judson, good. All right, last one. This one's a, a little bit more of a niche question. from the last lesson. Meditation is similar to the digestive process of what animal? A lion? That's a really cool answer, but it's not correct. What, did you have an answer, Sid? Cow, Cow right? What do we call that? Do you remember the, the term for that? It starts with an R. Rumination. Rumination, right? Now, meditation, I, I guess I phrased that really badly. Meditation is not a digestive process. It is a, a thought digestive process, right? Where rumination means to uh, chew it up, throw it up. You've probably done that one. And swallow it. Your kids do that sometimes too. And you're like, stop it. That's gross, right? But that's how meditation works. You, you take a thought into your mind from a Sunday school lesson, from your Bible reading, and you don't just spit it out you recirculate it in your mind. You're redigesting it, okay? So this morning, I want to talk to you about how to restore godly perspective. How many in this room wear glasses? Brother Jerry, Miss Ruth, you wear glasses, right? Come on, you, yeah, this is not a trick question, right? You wear glasses, right, Joy? You know, some of you, I don't even realize you do wear glasses. They just look, look right through it to your eyes. All right, did you know that this is, this is how glasses work? That, that behind the glass is your eye that God has made with a complex system of nerves known as the retina. If light enters the eye and focuses perfectly on your retina, that's what allows you to see something clearly, right? If light uh, doesn't hit your eye perfectly focused on the retina, you'll have blurred vision. So really what glasses are doing, the reason why we have different prescriptions is the different prescriptions are angling the light differently to bring it into our retina and try and bring that image into focus. You know that that's the way it works because what happens when you try on someone else's glasses? What, what's, what's your vision look like? Blurred, right? Um, depending on the glasses, I'm, I put on my mom's glasses growing up. I felt sick, instant. I mean, it was bad. 
right? And the reason is, is that you are wearing the wrong prescription. You have the wrong lens. And when you're looking, listen, when you're looking at the world through defective lenses, it'll change what you see. Now, not all of us in this room have physical glasses, right? It's probably about 50-50, maybe about 60-40 in this room. But I want you to think about this. You may write this down. All of us see the world through a lens. We see the world through a lens. We see the world, we call it our perspective. And just like your parents' glasses or your spouse's glasses may skew things when you put it over your eyes, it's possible for us to have distorted lenses, perspectives in our minds. What is that distorted perspective called? There's a fancy $5 term for it. If you want to impress your friends, use this term in a sentence next week. Your perspective is shaped by what psychologists call cognitive bias. Cognitive bias. That's the name that is given to a distorted perspective, to a distorted lens. Now, let me explain what that is, and you'll see it in the Bible here in just a minute. By the way, I want you to turn to Proverbs 9 and Philippians 1. We'll be at Philippians 1 at the end, Proverbs 9 near here in a minute. Okay? What is cognitive bias? Cognitive bias is a consistent pattern of deviating from reality in how we see and process things. It's a consistent pattern in deviating from reality in how we see and process things. Have you ever heard the term or the sentence, perception is reality. You ever heard that? Why do people say that? They say that because the truth of the matter is that what we see is not always a reflection of what is real. Often, what we see is a reflection of our perception of the things that are real. I'll explain that here in a minute. Cognitive bias, here's what it does. It creates in your own mind a subjective reality, one that is real to you. It feels real, but when someone else looks at the same thing, it becomes quite obvious it's not real, right? It'll dictate how you respond to him. That's how two people can look at the same thing and see something else, right? Uh, if, you're, if you're interviewing eyewitnesses of an accident, it's pretty obvious what cognitive bias is because you have two people who saw the same event, but because of their different lenses, their different perspectives, they're seeing something different, right? Let me give you an example. I had to go to a wedding. Uh, maybe you've gone to a social event recently. Most of us hate those type of things, don't we? We, we avoid them at all costs. Frankly, I tried to get out of attending this wedding and then I got guilted by my guilt-giving uncle. And so I thought, you know, I probably should go to this wedding. But the reason a lot of people don't like public parties and weddings is this, because when they show up, maybe because of a self-conscious mindset about their looks, have you ever felt, uh, especially as a teenager, have you ever felt everyone's looking at me? Everyone's noticing that my sport coat, 
that I haven't worn in six months is missing two buttons, right? Everyone's seeing it. Or you spill a little bit of something on your shirt, and so you, you, you don't have time to change your shirt, so you walk back into work or you walk back into church on Sunday night, and you're like, everyone's looking at the stain. Don't look at the stain, right? What is that? That's cognitive bias, because let me break it to you. Not everyone's looking at you. <laughs> Not everyone cares and looks at you as much as you and I think, right? Uh, uh, here's another example. Um, maybe maybe this, is, this is a mindset we get into. We think something like this. That person is out to get me. You ever thought that? Kids, you thought that about your parents? You've thought that about your boss, a leader? They're out to get me. What is that? That is cognitive bias that takes maybe one negative thing, your interpretation of that, and says, okay, now I'm going to look at everything else through the lens of they're out to get me. They may not be out to get me. They may have just done this with no malice whatsoever, but I'm going to look at that and say, okay, they're out to get me because I have this now lens that I've built because of my negative perception of that person. Here's another one. Um, Two employees receive negative feedback from their boss. One employee is offended. Hopefully that's not you. The other employee makes adjustments and is helped. How, how can two employees who both receive corrective feedback view their boss in a completely different way? Because of cognitive bias. Are you following me this morning? All right. A visual eye check would help me through those lenses that some of you wear, right? Okay, so I, I'm not here, we're, we're not here for a lecture on social psychology, okay? We're here for the bread of life. But here's what I want you to see, okay? What I want you to see is that a lot of times, cognitive bias is at work in all of us, it's just easier to see it in other people, isn't it? That's why, that's why church family listens, so can you just listen for a second? You need somebody that you can talk to. You need a spouse. You need to be open with your spouse about the thoughts you're processing. And listen, men, Father's Day, could you please just do me a favor and do your spouse a favor and actually listen and talk to your spouse even when their thoughts are really, really dumb in your mind? Okay? Because the reason is, is that we all have these lenses and unless somebody's willing to lovingly listen and talk us through that patiently, we cannot see past those. And if you're not married, listen, you need somebody in your life to do that with. You need a brother in Christ, a sister in Christ, a pastor, whatever. You need somebody that thinks with the mind of God who will listen to your cognitive biases and say, hey, listen, I know that sounds really real to you, but I don't have the same lens as you do, and that might actually help you in this moment right? And so what we need to understand is that those lenses are real. Can we acknowledge that this morning? I have a cognitive bias. I have a faulty perspective. My understanding of reality is not always reality itself. Do we understand that? Okay. But it's actually more of a dire situation than that. Your cognitive bias, your perspective actually hinders your walk with God. That's what we're here to talk about, okay? 
I'm not necessarily here to make you feel better about yourself at a party, okay? And, and worry, not worry about people staring at you. I'm here to help you with your walk with God. And this is such a problem that Solomon, writing to his son, talks about this in Proverbs 9. Okay, so here's the next blank on your hand out. Your cognitive biases can affect your walk with God. Let's look at Proverbs 9. Be in a couple verses together here. I want you to notice in these verses, two different people have the same thing given to them or happened to them, and they respond two very different ways. Okay? Proverbs 9, let's look at verse 8. Reprove not a scorner, lest he hate thee. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love thee. Can we agree rebuke and reprove are pretty much the same thing? Okay? Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be yet wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. So I want you to notice this. That, that what we're going to see in these verses is that if you have a construction of reality that affects how you see the world, it may not just be flawed, it may be damaging your spiritual life. Okay, your biases are not just different. They can be godly or ungodly, okay? What is Solomon saying, okay? At its core, here's the principle. This is a, and this is a good principle for us to understand. That your response to correction and teaching is a good litmus test for what your heart is. Solomon's saying this, how do you know whether someone's a scorner? Well, correct them. You'll find out very quickly. Because godly people don't respond hatefully to godly correction, right? Godly people, it's not, it's not a characteristic of a godly or a wise or a just. I mean, all the synonyms, right? Wise, just, um, those are the synonyms he's using. Their response is different, right? Their response is what? Now, it's interesting. I said rebuke and reprove are kind of the same term. If, if there's any difference, look at verse number eight, between reprove and rebuke, rebuke is actually a stronger term in the Bible, right? Rebuke, reprove is more like, hey, you're doing this wrong, right? You're on the wrong path. Rebuke is, hey, that's wrong. Do you see the difference? So who gets the stronger correction in the verse? The scorner or the wise man? The wise man. Who responds with hatred? The guy with the strong correction or the guy with the weak correction? The weak correction. So the scorner gets a lesser correction, still correction, reproof. How does he respond? Verse 8. Poor Robert. Robert literally has congestion in a sore throat. He's the only man speaking out loud and responding. Robert... Praise God, high five virtually, all right? Give Robert a break. How does the scorner respond to this correction? He hates him. Wow, overreaction much, right? So he hates that person. Here, here's the point in the verse, all right? The, the, 
Point is this, their different responses are because of their different lenses. And their different lenses, Solomon says, come from their different hearts. That what we're gonna see this morning is your perspective is an outflow of your walk with God. That's why someone like Paul, we'll see in a minute, could totally reshape his perspective on the very things that would discourage us and knock us down, okay? So here's a man who has a, here's his lens. That man, because he corrects me, hates me. So I'm gonna hate him. Why does he have that perspective? Because he's a scorner. His heart eschews, it hates spiritual correction, right? The wise man gets a stronger rebuke, and he, he gives the guy a hug. He says, thank you, pastor. Thank you, brother. Thank you, mom, right? A wise son makes a glad father, the Bible also says, Father's Day, right? So, so what's the difference? His lens is, if that person cares enough to have the guts to tell me I'm straying from God's word, that's a good person, and I ought to, I ought to stick around them right? So, so what we're seeing in, in Proverbs is that this, this lens can literally, church family, it can, it can affect your spiritual life. That's just one example. I, I'll give you, uh, well, I'm going I'm to go there later. Um, now, I want you to look at this. What gives the wise man the lens he had, okay? I'm not skipping to another chapter. This is still in the mind of Solomon, the next verse, look at verse 10, 9, 10, chapter 9, verse 10. So, so who is the man who responded with love to correction? He was called the what man? Wise man, right? All right. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. And the knowledge of holy is understanding. Solomon says, here's how that wise man came to be. Here's how that man's perspective came to be, where he would receive correction. Just one of a myriad of lenses, right? It came from fear of the Lord. Why is the wise man's lens the way it is? He fears God. When you fear God, you tend to be more receptive to correction because when you see yourself in relationship to God, you tend to not overestimate your character and you tend to not overestimate your godliness. So when you receive correction, you're like, oh, yeah, that's probably right you know, I'm, I'm really not that great, right? And then there's this other man, this ungodly perspective, the scorner, who by implication, here's what, what do you think Solomon is saying about him? Does he have the fear of the Lord or no? No fear of the Lord, right? So are you seeing our perspective affects issues of spirituality and where does our perspective come? The heart, right? Okay? So in order to restore godly perspective, we need to have a heart to see things the way God wants us to see them. And I want to give you two different ways we can reframe things or, or, or shape our perspective. Here's how they're worded. Oh, it's, it's already on your hand out. Reframe your past. Okay, we're going to talk about reframing your past and pre-framing your future. Okay, reframe your past, pre-frame 
your future. Turn to Philippians 1, and we'll get there in just a second, okay? Here's the first thought I want you to see on your handout of when it comes to reframing your past. You cannot change your past, but you can control how you think about the past. I'm going to say that again. You can't change the past. I wish we could. There's a lot of things I'd change about what I did, and a lot of things I'd change about what's done to me. But you can change how you think about it. Okay? Let me explain what I mean by framing. Your frame is how you view things. It's like your perspective. Here's what re- reframing is. Okay? You might, might write this down. You might not. Reframing is when we decide we are not going to hang on to old perceptions that have hurt us. We cannot control what has happened to us, but we can control how we frame it. Okay? A great example of reframing the past is the Apostle Paul. Okay? I just want to speak to the cultural view of this really quickly. Lord knows I'm going to have trouble making it through this lesson. But nonetheless, I think this is good. Church family, I I don't uh, discourage you from seeking help from professional counselors and psychologists. I think depending on the situation, there's a lot of benefit there. So understand that. My concern is that in popular psychology, there's an overemphasis about blaming our present issues on the past. We can understand how our past has affected our present, it's just realistic to say that. But the Bible wants us to take a very profound step from there. And it wants us to see how past wrongs can be used by God for our good and for his glory. And I could teach a a three-hour lesson on that, theology in the Bible. We don't have time for that. But I want you to see one tiny incidence of that in Paul's life, okay? Uh, how many of us would agree Paul's gone through more bad things than we have? Okay? A lot of bad things, all right? Uh, I don't even think all of it's told in the Bible. If you've been in Acts, it's like, man, this guy's like a ragdoll. He just gets beat up all the time, right? Okay, so Philippians 1, he's reflecting on that. Actually, the people who are writing to him are really, really discouraged because this, this hero is in jail. I mean, what, what's the gospel gonna do now? Have you read the book of Acts? I mean, it's like, Peter and Paul, the stars of the show, and now one of them's locked up. Who knows what happened to Peter at this point? And and Paul writes to them, and he says, listen, church, your frame on this is wrong. You're discouraged, you're beat down because I'm locked up, but look at verse 12. Paul's looking at his bonds. My my Bible has the, the header bonds in Christ, right? He says, I would that you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather under the furtherance of the gospel so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. Notice this. There's an outward expanding circle of the effect of Paul's imprisonment. So he's talking in the palace, in all other places, Now in verse number 14, he's going to say, my ministry has been multiplied by my bonds. Okay, look at verse 14. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, 
are much more bold to speak the word without fear, okay? So Paul being locked up in prison, never getting out again, good thing or bad thing? Good thing or bad thing? Locked up, never to get out again. Man's perspective, sorry. Robert, I know you're trying to be all spiritual. He's like, well, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, man's perspective, good thing or bad thing? Bad thing, y'all. You don't want nobody locked up who's a Christian, right? But Paul says, Paul says, bad thing, doing some good things, right? There's another incident. The Philippians are ticked off because some of these people in their preaching ministry in verse number 14 are actually, we don't know exactly what's going on, but by their words or their actions, they are changing the view that the public has on Paul, making it more likely that he's gonna be executed at his trial. Man's perspective, good thing or bad thing? Bad. No, no dead Paul. We don't want that, okay? Now look, verse 15. So people preaching Christ of envy and strife, bad thing. But here's what he says. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife and some of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, bad thing, supposing the added affliction of my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I'm set for the defense of the gospel. What then, notwithstanding, every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And therein I do rejoice. Yea, and I will rejoice. So he says, bad thing turns to a good thing. Here's, here's what we see in Paul. Paul could not change what happened to him, but he could control how he thought about that thing. Here's what you need to do, church. We have to learn to reframe our past based on God's truth. Okay? Let's workshop this for just a second. I can only give you one idea, okay? Let me pick one. Okay, so my past. Sometimes when we look at our past, we see a past of failure spiritually, right? We have a history of, of not being able to overcome all sorts of various sins and addiction. Uh, we can't control our our relationship with food. We can't control our relationship with lust or pornography. We can't control our relationship with our anger. We always seem to blow up. And so here's what happens. We look at our past. We look at a long history of sin and dysfunction, and we say something like this. I will always be because I've always been that way, because my father was that way, because my parents did this to me. And you know what? Apart from Christ, that's probably true. But what does Paul say about what happens when Christ enters our life? We become a new creation. Now we're gonna get to Genesis 1 next week. Woo, so pumped about it. Think about that picture. You'll see this in Genesis 1. You can read it this week. God takes utter chaos, utter darkness, and forms out of it this beautiful thing. When Paul says you're a new creature, a new creation, he's saying that's how different you are in Christ. So when we, when we look at our past, we say, okay, I've got to reframe my past based on God's truth. I need to say, I need to recognize that I was that, but in Christ I am now this. 
I am in Christ, I am now free from addiction. In Christ, I'm now free from anger unless I choose to go back into bondage. But Christ has set me free. He's recreated me. He's literally wiped that away and remade me in a totally different image, right? So we also need to pre-frame our future. And boy, oh boy, do I not have enough time. What is pre-framing? This is is even more important because you may not have a lot of baggage that you've got to reframe, depending on your age, really, a lot of us, and depending on your life circumstances. But but all of us need a bit of this. Pre-framing is choosing how I'll view something before it happens. Church family, there's gonna be times where I'm gonna preach on trials, I'm gonna preach on things like this, and you may not be in that situation, but you need to listen and heed the instruction because it'll help you pre-frame. When bad things happen, here's what I'm, I'm convinced of. Christians who make it through trials without bitterness They don't do it because all of a sudden the trial, they decide to view God in a positive way. For years, they've been pre-framing, pre-framing, right? So here's an example of pre-framing. We we can start off our day this way. We we can say something like this. Bad things are going to happen to me today because that's all that seems to happen. Or we could pre-frame with Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for our good. To them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Here's another thing we might say. I've got too much on my plate. I can't get through this. You felt overstacked lately, overly busy, too much on your hands. You've got too many plates spinning with burdens or, or responsibilities. Can I, can I challenge you to pre-frame a different way? Because let's just think logically. What good does it do to you to try and predict your own chaos? (laughs) Out of 10 times, how many times does that help? Come on, y'all. How many times does that help out of 10? Zero. (laughs) Being the weatherman of your own disasters is not really a good gig. It doesn't help. Instead, what you could do and I've literally seen this, and this is why I wrote it in my lesson after the fact, is that you could say, I'm going to do what I can with what God has given me and trust him to bless that. I start off my days, I've seen this, and I'm not not trying to glorify myself, but glorify God. I've seen days where I've started off where I had no idea how I was going to finish everything or get through the messes I had. And here's what I believe. When you pre-frame, when you say, you know what? God's word says that if I'm a good steward, he gives more. I have no idea I'm going to spend this. I have this much money and this much needs. But here's what I'm going to do, God. I'm going to do my very darndest best with this. And I'm going to watch you either expand my income or shrink my outgo. I can tell you, church family, from personal experience in the last three weeks, I've seen that. I've had this much time and this much stuff to do. And I've seen this happen many times. I'll say this. All right, God, I trust that if I'm a steward of this time, even though I've got more stuff than I I know how to do, you're going to find a way to multiply my time. Now, how many of us know time doesn't actually multiply? But here's what's happened. I've seen God clear stuff off my calendar, lessen things here, and what do you know? It starts fitting, right? Right? So I just want to encourage you, 
pre-frame. And that's going to take a little bit of discipline. That's why you, I would encourage you to write these truths down, put them on your mirror, put them on a note card, put them on a reminder on your phone, pre-frame. Because some of us, when we start predicting our own negative destiny, we become self-fulfilling prophecies. We, we start becoming the things we're worried about. Well, no wonder things go sour because all you're doing is thinking about how it's going to go sour. Yeah, you're, you're, you're following the path your mind has carved out for you. Okay? <clears throat> Just an example. Vultures soar high in the sky searching for what? Dead meat. Hummingbirds run around searching for what? Nectar. What's the difference? Well, they both find what they're looking for, don't they? I think the same is true for you. You'll always find what you're looking for. If you're looking for God's hand, you'll find it. If you're looking for your life to fall apart and be miserable like you just think it will, you'll find it. We can't control what happens to us, but we can control how we think about what happens to us. There's so much more we could do there. I'm not sure if you have an exercise sheet or not. I'd encourage you to take those two principles, pre-framing and reframing, and workshop those in your own way this week. Father, we thank you for your word. I trust God, though we couldn't cover as much as I would have liked to, that you will use this to help us shape our our lenses, our perspectives. God, help us to frame things in a biblical way, in a God-honoring way. And Lord, I trust that as we are seeking you and fearing you, God, your spirit will reframe our life as the fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom. Pray and trust you'll do that. I ask that you'll bless the service to follow. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alrighty, you're dismissed. Let's take some time to fellowship together. Greet those who might be new or regular visitors, and uh, we'll be ready to worship right at 11 o'clock.